Right now on Amplified, the Engineers Journal podcast, we're about to meet the Managing Director of AOCA, Aidan O'Connell. Being an engineer is a fantastic career. Every single day is a, is a new day and every single day is a learning day. If you are good at what you do, your clients will come. The single biggest problem I've ever had to fix, the pyrite issue that started out back in say 2006, 2007, 2008 and then really came to the forefront in the early 2010, 11 and 12 period. This was something I went, wow, I don't understand this. Hello there, my name is Dusty Rhodes and you're welcome to Amplified, the Engineers Journal podcast. Today we're chatting with a man who will be sharing a little bit about how to grow an engineering business or even maybe how to take over the running of an engineering business. He also has a fascinating story to tell behind one of the big construction stories of the last 20 years with the pyrite problem. He is a chartered civil engineer who returned from the UK to establish his own firm in Port Leash in 1996, then expanded to Dublin in 2014 before being named a Fellow of Engineers Ireland. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome the owner and managing director of AOCA, Aidan O'Connell. How are you? Good morning to you, Dusty. All good here in Port Leash. Excellent. Listen, let me get your engineering credentials first. What inspired you when you were a child to get into this silly business of ours? Strangely, I had no intention of being an engineer. I was heading <laughs> down a medicine route as far as I was concerned. Right. And um, ultimately, I did my leaving cert like everybody else. And back then, the points weren't as onerous as they are now in that back then we were, I think it was 20 points to do medicine, yeah, um, which was obviously high in terms of it. They just gave you a lot less. You don't get the huge numbers of points for an A or a B. So ultimately, I missed out medicine by a single point and engineering was down as my second choice. So I decided, fate had decided that that's, I wasn't going to do medicine. And in, in fairness, my wife has said to me many times, and she's a nurse, God help anybody who ever saw you as a doctor, because <laughs> if you were going to be rebuilding them or cutting their legs off and sticking them back together again, maybe, but not as an, not, not as a hold a hand, nice gentle engineer, or sorry, doctor, should I say. So I ended up doing engineering and I have to be absolutely honest with you, I've loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. There isn't a single second, I would say, in my entire career that I have doubted that I went down the right route. I have travelled and I've met amazing people. I've spoken Osgoelga in in the Docklands in the UK, talking to lads on site because they only spoke Osgoelga because it was the pop what you did over there if you wanted a bit of privacy on site. And at the time, yeah. At the time, yeah. And I've gone to New York and I've spoken Osgoelga and the <laughs> underground over there. Look, it's... Being, having a, a small bit of the Gaelga is very helpful, let's put it that way. When did you sit back and just say to yourself, I've achieved the dream, I am now an engineer? I've never said that. I've always said that every single day is a, is a new day and every single day is a learning day. So if you don't learn something new every single day, you're kind of wasting your life, I would say. Being an engineer is a fantastic career. One of the most insightful lectures or talks I've ever heard was one that we got in our final year in college and it was fantastic that they actually brought in somebody like that. 
And he was an engineer himself who basically said, look, lads, you're starting out as a civil or structural engineer. That's what you're starting as. What are you going to be in five years and 10 years and 20 years or 30 years time? You will not be what you started out as. And that is absolutely true. I started out with Wimpy Homes over in the UK as a junior site engineer. Fairly quickly over there, I progressed up being site manager, still being an engineer, which was extremely helpful. And then once I met my wife, Mary, and then we moved back here to Ireland in 1991, I then became a road design engineer working on the design of the Port Leash motorway. And I can absolutely tell you, I had zero design experience of motorways when I came back to Ireland. And I had very little experience of pressing buttons on computers and getting them to actually work on design of things. But you learn very quickly because engineers are incredibly adaptable. In those kind of, I don't want to call it the early years, but kind of the days when you were hands-on engineering on a day-to-day basis, what was, what was the biggest challenge you faced on a job? I don't think there's a single engineer who's not hands-on throughout their entire life, throughout their entire career. Even though you're managing director now, you're still hands-on? Absolutely. I was on a site yesterday in London only, and I was looking at intumescent material and on structural steel and looking at structural failures that have occurred. And I will be doing that, I hope, till the day I die, or certainly till the day I retire. I, I don't think I will ever actively retire. I will still say I'd be keeping my hand in because you need to keep your brain moving and most definitely engineering does do that for you. So I, there is never going to be a time when regardless how, how how high you go, if you lose touch with what you are, which is an engineer, then you're, you're only becoming a manager and really that's not what I want to be. Grant, well, that widens the fields then. The biggest problem you had to fix. Oh, the single biggest problem I've ever had to fix. Good God, that is a big one. So the single biggest thing in my career that I've had to try and understand and help people with has most definitely been the the pyrite issue that started out back in, say, 2006, 2007, 2008, and then really came to the forefront in the early 2010, 11 and 12 period. But the first case I ever saw would be back in, say, 2006 and it was a very unusual thing, and I it was actually in brickwork I saw it, or blockwork, should I say, in a house down in County Clare. And it, this was something I went, wow, I don't understand this. But ultimately, I sponsored and engaged actively with uh, Galway University, NUI Galway, and um, Dr. Brian McCabe down there was an incredibly forward-thinking gentleman in the civil engineering department and I worked with some of the students there both as masters and as postgraduate um, final year projects and we did a monstrous amount of research over I'd say about five years where we actually built rigs, we built test slabs, we, we, we designed systems so we could actually monitor how this whole pyrite problem came about. And then ultimately, we got involved in writing the original protocols. Now, we all call them standards originally. They were called protocols for how you go about testing and analysing. And then that developed in writing the um, IS398 standard with NSAI. There was myself and another colleague of mine in AOCA, Colin Scott. We, we did that in conjunction with an entire committee in NSAI. Give, give me a little bit more detail about how you set those protocols and, and standards, especially when you're working with a number of other people. Yeah, I was very lucky. I had 
the help of James Lombard, who, God rest him, he was the managing director of uh, Ground Investigation Ireland Limited. And he was one of the world's greatest gentlemen in terms of helping anybody. So he gave me all of his advice and we looked at what testing procedures or protocols were actually available for sampling of, of stone and sampling of, of the mineralogy of stone itself. And then I came across Dr. John Cripps, who was in Sheffield University and was a very well-written engineer or geologist in relation to this field. And then there are other people as well, like Paul Quigley of IGSL, who came along and gave me their advice. So ultimately, it was by talking to these people and saying, okay, we suspect that this is a chemical reaction process, that is, that we need to be able to um, detect the various stages of it and be able to then physically see it, but not only physically see it, that we can actually test it from an analytic process and have a printout that we can say, there you are, there's the answer. Black and white. Black and white. What exactly was it you were looking for? We were looking for the byproducts. Ultimately, when you st- the whole pyrite thing, it starts out as iron sulfide, which is FES2. So iron sulfide reacts then with water. It goes through a number of chemical reaction processes. One of the byproducts is iron oxide, which is just brown staining you'll see on stone. But the, the final byproduct is gypsum. And gypsum, because it is twice the size of an original pyrite crystal, it causes the expansion of the stone and the fracturing of the stone, etc. So we want to be able to actually physically see the gypsum crystals, which you can under a microscope. And you can go into much more detail in terms of electronic microscopes and XRD, which is X-ray diffraction testing. So you can go all the way down that route. And if you do the XRD, it will actually give you a printout that says there is pyrite, there is other minerals that are other byproducts that you can physically see then within the stone itself. And where did you take the samples from? A lot of the samples were all taken from houses where there was damage that was being demonstrated that looked like it might be an expansive reaction that was happening. And what parts of the country? Oh, we started out originally in Dublin. Um, that was the, the our first location. We started in Dublin. Now, we had had, as I said to you, the first case I ever saw was in Killaloo in County Clare, but that was in Blockwork, and that was a few years earlier. But the very first sample of taking stone from beneath a house was in County Dublin. Is it localised depending on like kind of a local quarry has the problem or is it a national problem in that it's a quarry who exports bricks nationally? It's a national issue in that pyrite is present in, I would say, every single county in the country almost, probably except the ones that never were covered under water during the Ice Age, etc., going back that far. So pyrite really is, a, is as a result of kind of a sedimentary process where material is deposited. So what would, would have been estuaries historically or floodplains historically, they, they are susceptible to having pyrite. In Leash, where our head office is, I don't think, I haven't come across a single case where it's pure limestone down here. It's, it's quite clean. But like if we go and say that, yes, it's in Mayo, yes, it's in Clare, yes, it's in Limerick, and we've got about 13 counties at the moment where we have identified problems. You're very well known uh, with this particular problem and you now work on this abroad. Is pyrite better or worse around Europe from what you've seen? In Europe, it's not really that prevalent a problem. 
it has been known in the UK for a very long time. If we go back to the 50s and 60s and even earlier than that, they identified as the Mundic issue down in Cornwall and Devon. And they saw it there within the blocks because it was a byproduct from the tin mining down Cornwall and Devon. So the, the tailings as such that came off the quarries there and, and from the mines, they would have been used to actually make concrete blocks for the houses down there. And ultimately, because there was levels of pyrite in it, over years, they would have de- degraded to a certain extent. Now, interestingly, down there, not all houses are, are a demolition problem or the damage with them is of varying degrees to such an extent that they are actually sold and you can get raise a mortgage on them and you can live in them. And you, depending on the degrading that they have, you may end up having to do a little bit more maintenance on them over time but they are still a perfectly satisfactory property. So in Europe, no, I don't see it hugely. I have been consulted in America, uh, in various areas in America, both in Canada and also in the United States itself, whereby we've been asked to look at various matters over there. Walmart would have been one of our clients, Nova Scotia, a bank would have been another one. And invariably what we would find is, is that in the greater American area where you wouldn't have any significant snowfalls or significant temperature variations, you would find that the um, the problem is quite similar to Ireland. When you go to Canada, it is slightly different because, well, slightly significantly different because for half the year, they would have a permafrost temperature. And when your temperatures go right down, from our research, we've seen that the reaction actually kind of stops and then it starts up again once the temperature rises. Do you feel that engineers are in any way culpable for the problem because they were there at the design stage and the planning stage? I wouldn't say the engineering industry is culpable. I wouldn't say that at all. What I would say is is that there's a number of external factors that brought this all about. Ultimately, engineers work to standards. Those standards are created by committees working for NSAI or British Standard BS in the UK, or Kiwa or BBA, which is British Board of Agriculture Certification. So there's a number of different authorities that are out there that will decide what standards are applicable, etc. So if we then look at how does a standard get created, the IS398 standard was created by a committee that consists of probably, I think it was 16 or 17 people. So you would have geologists, you would have um, government bodies, so from the Department of the Environment and the Building Control Section of the Department of Environment, Geological Survey Ireland, quarry people, so there was representatives from the quarry industry, from the Irish concrete industry, you had um, representatives from side investigation companies like James Lombard was on it, we had Paul Creakley on it, we had other people as well from similar companies that were on it. And then you had engineers as well. And myself and another shop called Colin Scott, we were there representing Engineers Ireland. Paul Ford of GBFL was also on on the same committee. So that large committee then reviewed the whole process and between us all, we came up with the actual standard. You strike me as a man who loves a challenge, a born engineer, I'd say. (laughs) And coming back from the UK, and you decided to start your own business in Leash with no track record in Ireland and all that kind of stuff. It's not easy. It takes a very special person to do that. Uh, you've been in business for almost 30 years. What challenges have you had to overcome in running a small engineering firm? I was lucky. I had, I had a good, solid base. 
I was reasonably financially secure. I had a good job at the, the county council, so I was okay at the time financially. I didn't put myself under too much pressure from a mortgage perspective because I bought my house, my first house when I was 22 in the UK. So I went over the day after my 21st birthday, I went over to the UK. I qualified from, from UCD. I went over to the UK and arrived there with, I think it was £200 in my pocket. I haven't worked all summer at the Royal Marine Hotel in Dublin. And landed in London without a job and no place to to live. Absolutely nothing. And my parents said he'd be back by the end of the week because he he won't he certainly won't be able to find anything that quickly because I wasn't as organised. Bear in mind the modern youth now have the internet. They've absolutely everything. I had nothing. Yeah. So I I went to um, the London University over there. Looked up the students' union and saw what accommodation was available for students. Made a few phone calls. Had accommodation that night. So I arrived on a Tuesday and Thursday, started working with Wimpy's. And um, I, what I can say is after the first week, my wages were just over £230. And that was more than I had saved in Ireland for the entire summer. So I was going, yippee, this is brilliant. <laughs> so well, ultimately, UK worked out very well for me financially and personally and professionally. And then I was able to come back to Ireland in 91 with my wife and we ended up building a house in Port Leash and then we were reasonably secure. So I then decided after a number of years with Leash County Council, I'm going to give this a try of going out my own. So the biggest challenge at the time was clients and I had one client who was a housing developer and I said, okay, well, that's one source of income. And if I'm my own totally, I'd be able to manage on what that generates. But we started out with two people and I said, right, I'm aiming to make £85,000 at the time. Yeah, Ooh, so huge was, money at the time. Yeah, so my target was to make £85,000 in the first year. If we if we could do that, I'd said we'd be all fine. We made 79000 so I wasn't too far out. But I missed the target, but that was a target. And then year two, we made 205000 so we were, I was kind of going, okay, this is, this is going to work, I think. Mm. And then over the years, the, the challenges started to come. So starting in originally, you would be thinking, will this work? Are people going to come? And what I would find, always say to people is that if you are good at what you do and you put yourself out there, it will come, but the work will come. Your clients will come. There is absolutely no doubt about it. And it, you have, just have to get over the challenge of having faith in yourself. So that was the initial biggest challenge I had to believe in myself and say, okay, don't be looking at how, what are your costs on a weekly basis? How much money do I need to make every single week just to keep the doors open? Forget about that. Step back and take the, the larger picture and go, okay, how am I going to be at the end of two months? Have I enough money? Are we still there after two months? And have faith that the work will come in. And that has been the case from day one. Those challenges have changed over the years. We've never had a financial difficulty, fortunately. Um, we've, we've never laid anyone off as such either. There hasn't been a single case in our entire history where we had to lay anyone off due to any reason in terms of financial, etc. The single biggest challenge we have now is actually getting staff, getting good quality staff. And but that's endemic, I think, across the entire country and every single facet of business. Modern youth now, when they qualify from college, they the first thing I think they they look at is where can I go? 
So they look at going to Australia or Canada, New Zealand, America or the UK. And just, but the world is their oyster. And I would never discourage them from doing that. But I would also love to see them coming back to Ireland and bringing back their experiences. And fewer and fewer of them are, are actually doing that. Let me ask you more about the challenges of getting people into the firm, good people, because the competition is fierce. You've got people who are moving abroad and then you've also got, you know, kind of local authorities are, are able to offer them all kinds of incentives uh, to go there as well. And people are tempted by it. Is this a problem with you as well? It's a nightmare. Oh, a nightmare. Nightmare is the only word that I could actually describe it. COVID was an extremely difficult time for every single business and was extremely difficult for engineering practices because development stopped dead and right across the board. And there was large amounts of people, I won't say laid off, but they were temporarily stopped working. And we were similar as well. We, at the bulk of our staff, we were able to keep them fully gainfully employed. But there were a small number of people that we had to say, look, you need to avail of the COVID scheme payment scheme because we we literally just had no income or very little income coming in at that time to be able to cover every single person that we had employed. Once COVID finished, we then started back up fully with all every single member of staff that we had. But it seemed to then change people's mentality as in, oh, maybe I would like to have a little bit more time at home or maybe I would like to have a different type of working arrangement and they I, what I can say from our own experience is we lost six staff to councils and the county councils are offering kind of open the door starting 30 days annual leave which is way above the norm and then they offer you flex leave of an additional 12 days per calendar year so effectively you end up with 42 days of leave quite easily and on top of that, then you've got sick leave that I was told by two people that left. Oh, yeah, you you have sick leave that you basically must take or you <laughs> should take. So yeah. instead of having maybe 24, 25 days leave with AOCA, they end up with 42 plus maybe another five or six days sick leave. And they're not there. They just don't. They're not working. And, and I know some people in the, in the local authority system are going to take great, great offense from me saying it. But the reality of it is, is that it's very difficult to get in contact with people in local authorities now because they're effectively working from home all the time and it's very difficult to get them or they're on annual leave or whatever it is. So getting people, getting good qualified people is very, very difficult. And every engineering company is trying has the same challenge, I would say. How do you tackle that by saying what are the advantages of coming to work for you? That's where modern youth comes in and that's where my son Philip has joined us and he is looking to bring us into the 21st century and 20, 22nd century, if you want to call it that way. So he's going to turn us into a fun place, more fun than just a standard engineering company that goes out there and deals with problems. So he's looking to modernize us in terms of our work practices. So we will be um, able to give people working from home facilities. We will have make sure that all of our staff are working from the, the latest hardware in terms of laptops and that they can synchronize and work remotely, etc. We already are able to do that, but effectively people take their PCs home or that we end up giving them a second PC. But now we're going to go down the whole route of laptops 
even though there's quite a significant infrastructure investment to do that for engineers. Standard laptops are no use. We need quite high-powered laptops, which are obviously very expensive to, to, to purchase. We're much more proactive on Facebook, much more proactive on LinkedIn. I think that it is probably paying some dividends. We're already seeing some people that are, are applying directly to us now for employment rather than us having to go through the agency route. I'm wondering about an engineer who'll be listening to the podcast who's kind of like kind of mid-level, if you like, and is thinking, you know, one day I want to get up there. I want to be the managing director. I want to buy it. Can you tell us a little bit about this process of transitioning and maybe we can learn something from it? Well, you can do a buyout. And that is probably the simplest and most straightforward way of doing it. And there's lots of um, tax breaks in terms of entrepreneurial reliefs and then transition reliefs going forward so that that process can be done where it doesn't place a huge financial burden onto the company. But you have to have somebody that you can hand it over to to do that. You've seen lots of people come into the firm uh, who are ambitious. What what impresses you about somebody who wants to move up the ladder within a company? Their drive and their focus. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. We have one young gentleman now with us as we speak who is just finished his first year in university and he came to us for a little bit of work experience or just to see what things were like after he had done his junior cert. He has come to us every single summer since. He's the most amazing young man with the most absorbent brain that you could imagine. And to see that young man blossoming slowly has been mind-blowing is the only way I would say. And then to see other people that come in and they come in as junior engineers or junior technicians and they work their way up and they get their experience and to send them out the single biggest thrill for me is when I send somebody out to do an investigation or to look at a job and they write a report on it or write a summary and I look at that report and it's so simple to read and so simple to follow, I then say, yes, I've achieved something. I've actually taught someone how to do a task. And then if you see a design, when you see somebody comes in with a concept design, and we've done some very unusual ones that have been on the TV and things like that. And they, they they go from a thought to a concept to paper to the calculations. And then you're physically on site as the structure seal has been put in place. And then finally, the client walks in to take possession of the property at the end of it. And their smile becomes your smile. It's fantastic. It's, it's almost as simple as applying yourself and showing an interest and, and an enthusiasm for the job. Yeah. I agree totally. What advice, Aidan, would you give to engineers listening who want to move up the career ladder? So first of all, if you are an engineer, you're not going to move up the ladder unless you go for chartered status. You have to have chartered status. That's an absolute minimum that you need to be able to bring to the table. Once you are chartered, that then gives you the credibility to be able to sign reports and sign documents that you are qualified, that you're recognized to be able to do that going forward. And then if you want to move up the career ladder within an engineering consultancy, you need to be able to see the bigger picture. You're not just looking at a particular steel beam or a particular concrete column or a particular foundation. You have to start looking at the overall building and you have to start looking at the, the wider picture as in, is there a better way of doing this? Is there a faster way of design approach? 
And yes, it does come down to economics because ultimately that's very important. We're in business here. We're like a corner shop keeper. We're trying to sell a product, ours a service, but we have to be able to show good value to the client. Can I ask you about becoming a fellow of Engineers Ireland? Because it's quite an honour. How did that come about? So as a result of probably the, the main research work that we had done in the pyrite field back in 2010, 11, 12, 13, and developing that, and then working with NUI Galway and developing all of the uh, testing that we had done and then writing the, a number of papers on it in conjunction with other fellow colleagues, I was then proposed and Dr. Brian McCabe was one of the people actually who proposed me. And then there were some other fellow colleagues as well. So yes, it was a great pleasure. I have also had the pleasure of being the chairperson of the Midland Region of Engineers Ireland, which um, again allowed me to interact with many of my fellow Midlands colleagues. So look, I love Engineers Ireland. I love what it does. And then to get the final accolade to say, and that you're a fellow of Engineers Ireland. I think that's great. What excites you when you think about engineering in Ireland in the next five years? I don't know where it's going. I don't know where engineering in Ireland in the next five years, next 10 years, in the next two years is going. And probably the reason I don't know where it's going is that it's so fast moving. Its direction is very confusing. Sometimes I look at the head of Medusa and, I, and if you ever get it in your head of the head of Medusa, it's got multiple snakes coming out of it, going in many, many directions. To a certain extent, I think that we're in that kind of a arena at the moment because of all the many technological changes, etc. that are coming out. There have been many, many building fabric changes in the last 10 to 15 years. So where historically you'd be looking at nice brickwork or nice blockwork or curtain walling systems, etc. Now all of that has changed because they're looking at systems that don't require so much labor in terms of brickwork and blockwork. Now we're looking at prefabricated systems. Now we're looking at, you know, rain screen systems, cladding systems, curtain walling systems that are very fast, very easy to erect. And it's all about speed, 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 speed. And now we're having to go, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Now we've lost control here in terms of some of the building products are all the, the golden bullets. They weren't the silver bullet, not, not the golden bullet, silver bullet. They weren't the silver bullet. Why weren't they the silver bullet? Well, because we had Grenville fire disaster, which showed us that some of these materials we were putting on the building make it turn into a Roman candle rather than a fire safe building for the occupants. And from an engineering perspective, we lost the run of ourselves there. In Ireland, we're actually very good at understanding how building products go together, how we should be addressing matters. We've got the building regulations, which are superb in Ireland. We have a very good part B, which is in relation to fire safety here in Ireland, and the whole concept of how you should approach a building in terms of being sure it's fire safe. So in, in England, they have what they call approved document B, which is the equivalent of our part B. But they then developed this holistic approach of complying with the building regulations relation to fire safety. It was almost of, well, I feel it in my water, it'll be okay. So that'll be okay. And that is literally how that process came about. 
And then they have what they call their approved building inspector process, which is a completely independent third party, which is great, who is there to look at the standards and look at the building process and say, okay, I'm satisfied this building is going to comply with the building regulations. And they're then supposed to implement a, an inspection process. And then they're supposed to then sign off on it, say, yes, everything is fine. Everything is great. And that paper is supposed to be worth gold. It's supposed to be sacrosanct. Now, prior to the approved building inspector regime, there used to be the building control officer from the local authority who was anal in terms of his inspections, gave you hell on site and got down into manholes and checked everything religiously. Absolutely. I've seen some of them being chased around building sites by fellas who, when he came back up and says, no, I'm refusing this, etc. And, <laughs> and it's fantastic. But unfortunately, in the UK, when they went down this approved building inspector thing, the paperwork became worthless. Every single building that I've been brought in to look at over in the UK has been a general disaster zone. I haven't found it as bad in Ireland, and this new assigned third fire regime here in Ireland, I think, is a great way of dealing with it. But as long as we don't allow that to start losing its credibility, the minute you lose credibility in a control process or an inspection process, you, the entire process fails. Aidan O'Connell, I can't thank you enough for being so honest and for sharing so much with us. Thank you for coming on our Engineers Ireland Amplified podcast. You're extremely welcome. Thank you very much, Dusty. If you would like to find out more about Aidan and some of the topics we talked about today, you'll find notes and links in the show notes area of your player right now. And of course, you'll find more information and exclusive advanced episodes of our Engineers Ireland Amplified podcast on our website at engineersireland.ie. Our podcast today was produced by DustPod for Engineers Ireland. If you would like more episodes, do click the follow button on your podcast player to get access to all of our past and future shows automatically. Until next time, from me, Dusty Rhodes, thank you for listening.